Hello Champagners and welcome back to the Champagne Rugby Podcast. On this week's episode of the Champagne Rugby Podcast, we are joined by two-time European champion and former Springbok, Raymond Rule. Raymond, how are you doing? I'm right, man. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm doing pretty well. It's a nice sunny day here in England. And you're currently based in La Rochelle, if I'm not mistaken. No, based in there's I think it's a... It's the southwest of France in La Rochelle. Uh, look, the weather is amazing for now. Um, pretty hot. I mean, I saw the boys train today, and uh, when they got off the pitch, essentially it looked like they just had a shower. So uh, <laughs> we're enjoying the summer for now. Obviously, with winter's coming, or winter's around the corner. So uh, we'll just enjoy the last bits of summer, yeah. You guys have just come off the back of a massive campaign with the win against Leinster in the European Rugby Championship final. How's the summer been? Uh, the summer's been great, um, especially for a lot of the boys. Um, obviously, some boys winning for the first time, some boys winning for the second time. Um, for me, it was a bit of an indifferent summer because I had a, a, a scope on my knees. So I couldn't walk for a little bit, you know, but uh, can't sit in certain positions, just moving around. Uh, but, I mean, it was a summer spent with family, um, so that part's always great. Um, but following the boys on social media, a lot of them were having fun all over the place. And uh, look, I mean, it's uh, it's it's nice to get away from the game for a little bit, just to refocus. And did you get some time to kind of relax and uh, take your head off the game? Yeah, no, for sure. Look, uh, you don't have to ask me twice when they when you tell me to, to go relax. So I know how to do that. Uh, yes, I do have work on the side, but uh, ultimately I'm able to to basically get away from the game. And I think it's it's needed. Yeah, it's, it's good to have a break uh, every now and then. So um, on the Champagne Rugby podcast, it's all kind of about, it's all about high-level rugby players and how they've got to where they've got to and yeah. what made them. So walk me through Raymond Rule. Uh, what, what's been the making of, or the challenges and the journey that you've been to uh, to be where you are today? Uh, well, well, it depends. I mean, I think uh, with with professional sport, there's, there's always an element of, of, of luck, you know. Um, yes, you get opportunities, uh, but you need the right opportunity at the right time. And if you got the right opportunity at the opportunity at the right time and you're able to use it you know you can catapult yourself very far um i think uh that i've been a product of that um throughout my career in uh being given an opportunity and i think once given an opportunity i tend to never look back not to say that one doesn't make any mistakes but uh i think uh, if i look back on my career thus far it's just been uh been a combination of having opportunities and taking them or grabbing them with both hands hands yeah what what were some of those opportunities like in sort of your early life that kind of projected you into taking on professional rugby uh i mean initially i I never really played rugby uh i was more of a sports uh a soccer guy uh, coming from ghana which is our number one sport in the country um but as I grew as I grew up in Bloemfontein, um, a lot of the young boys there played rugby, and I I used to wonder what odd ball shape is this, you know? And you see them kicking it around, and uh, picked it up, and I mean, 
I went home telling my mom, look, I play this sport. And the first thing she's like, no, hell no, you're not going to do that. Because, I mean, they're all associated with um, American football and how rough it is. But uh, God given a scholarship there. From then on, I moved um, to Libuerta, um, where I, I, I was fortunate enough to be coached by really good coaches that are highly, how do I say, it? they were invested in a lot of us young boys and uh, they've managed to produce quite a few springboks from that uh, from that uh, crop of boys. And outside of that, just looking towards my professional rugby where I was uh, playing at the varsity uh, team and uh, by then they'd already made uh, or announced the under-20 squad and I kept on telling the A or my SNCs that look I'm going to play for that under-20 squad uh, late in the year and they're like you haven't made any SA teams what are you talking about you know and uh, luckily enough I got an opportunity back then it was Vodacom Cup where it's a most, more of a mixture of the guys that aren't playing super rugby and the young boys come together and keep them busy before the, the Curry Cup started so I played in that. There was quite a few. There was a few scouts that were there in the only game that I played, and they saw something in me. Invi- ended up inviting me to the already chosen or, or formed under twenty squad, uh, just to see what I've got. And a um, few things went my way. Got the right opportunities, and I ended up starting the first uh, under twenties game. Now that in and of itself didn't go all that well. And that's where you learn the lesson first in or last in, first out. (laughs) So I got dropped after the first game, ended up playing the semifinals, took my opportunity there, played the finals. From there on, I got chosen now for the Cheetah Senior Curry Cup side. I took my opportunities there. And at the end of that year, from being nowhere on the radar to being on tour with a with the Springboks and uh, your heroes are singing happy birthday to you. So, look, it's uh, <laughs> that's why I say like my my career has been um well, not plagued, but just um con- consists of a lot of opportunities that I've taken, and uh, I have a tendency to of thinking I can do any and everything. When sometimes it's a good thing, sometimes you find yourself sitting on your on your ass, but uh, you take the good with the bad. How old were you when you moved to South Africa? I was uh, seven years old. I was ninety nine, seven years old. Yeah. And how was it growing up in South Africa? Uh, it was it was different. I mean, at that stage, I don't know how to speak the local language. I was a young foreign boys, and and back then it was. Uh, acceptance wasn't that easy you know uh right now i think with a whole lot more foreigners being in and around south africa they it's it's easy it's more acceptable back then it was one or two foreign boys and you sort of essentially have to adapt or die you got to figure out how it works or how everything goes along and uh if not you become an outcast so uh taught me a lot And then from South Africa, uh, with the club team, you were with Cheetahs, and then you got picked up by by the box, kind of in 2012, I believe. You you mentioned you went on a the tour. How, yeah. how was that first experience for you? No, it was amazing. Uh, looking back, or or as soon as the older you grow, you look back at that experience, and uh, I was just happy to be there. Um, a lot of the guys by that age or by that stage 
rugby for them was a really serious thing, you know. I was training with guys that have got mortgages and and wife and kids. And I'm sitting there fresh out of high school. I'm just happy to be there enjoying rugby. Um, and also at that stage, you'd only see rugby as 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 a good time, you know. So looking back at that, uh, I think I I didn't really take it as serious as uh as I was supposed to. Um, but that's just uh, part of growing up. And I think the nice thing about the youngsters that are coming coming through now, they know what uh, what's expected of them, and I think they carry it very well. Which players did you sort of look up to when you were growing up? Uh, honestly, J.P. Peterson and Brian Abana. I think uh, those two guys were were great players and uh to to a certain degree Jacques Fury being the 13 for South Africa at that stage, you know. Um there's quite a few guys. Um but uh yeah I think um if I was to pick two it'll be JP and Brian. Did you um interact with them? What was your kind of sort of first impressions and uh relationship with them when you were a youngster going in? No, it was good. I mean, I for me to manage, or when I managed to make the the South African squad, I was actually replacing Brian because he got hurt. I think in the Curry Cup final, uh, his hammy. So I didn't spend that much time with him. But when he when we won two, I think in England he came on, uh, or came to the team hotel and uh, just to be with the boys. And with JP, we just got on like a house on fire. We both guys that enjoy cracking a joke and don't take a lot seriously and just enjoy being ourselves, you know? So we got on very well. Um, so it was, it was amazing. It was amazing. And then you made your debuts during this tour or did you make your debut slightly later? No, I had to wait five years to make my debut. I kept my Springbok blazer. I couldn't wait for five years. I only ended up making my debut in June, I think of 2017. And that would have been against one of the maybe... Yeah. We played three tests against France. First yeah. one, I think, was in uh, Pretoria, then Joe, then Durban, then Joburg. Oh, fair enough. So at least you're doing a bit of a tour around uh, around your kind of childhood hometowns and everything. Uh, yeah. Africa. And yeah. How, how did playing for the box differ from sort of club rugby? Was it quite a step up or how was it for you? No, definitely. I think, uh, look, there's a whole lot less margin for error. Um, the box, uh, depending on which area you play, they play a different type of rugby. And test rugby is generally a whole lot less, uh, how do I say it, uh, free-spirited and a whole lot more responsibility. And, uh, I mean, you performing in club rugby doesn't necessarily translate to to international rugby. You know, you've got to earn your stripes in that aspect as well because, I mean you might find weak spots in certain teams in uh, in a club aspect but once you go to an international aspect i mean you're playing with the best of the best so it differs in that aspect but uh all in all uh, i think uh it's a step up it's a step up and do you have can you share some of your most memorable uh, moments while wearing a springbok jersey i think that would be getting on the field the first time uh, and actually, yeah, being able to call myself a fully fledged Springbok, because I mean, getting my Springbok number back in 2012, 
and basically keeping my my jacket in my closet for another five years you know the thoughts started to creep in will he ever be good enough will he ever actually achieve that that dream you know and just being able to to take that off uh coming onto the field or starting in that in that first game in Pretoria was pretty special and I think the second part would definitely be scoring my first try against Argentina and PE um, that was also pretty special. So, yeah, I think those are the two moments for me. What, and, and then on your debut, was there any sort of traditions or um, pre-post-match uh, traditions that the players or new debutants have to go through once they've put, pulled on the Springbok jersey? No, I think all teams have their own uh, the initiations, but uh, they, 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 they try to keep, Keep that away till the end of the tour, especially because now you want the boys to be able to focus and get everything out the way, you know, get the business end of everything out. And then, yes, we obviously have our own traditions, depending on which team it is um, that you do go through now once you become a fully fledged uh, member of the Springboxes. And I think with being a Springbok, the fans are very, let's say, um, passionate about the t the national team. And I think that's quite a lot of uh, pressure and expectations that comes with being a Springbok. How mm. did you cope with kind of the spotlight and, let's say, the weight of representing the country at this level? Uh, I, let's, say, let's just say it teaches you a lot. Um, because coming from uh, a team like the Cheetahs, yes, we always had aspirations, but our fans were more more gentle and kind in terms of how things were handled um expectations weren't, weren't always as high um we just always in, they enjoyed the rugby we played and obviously winning is always a part of that but uh, they understood sometimes if we didn't uh, obviously reach certain milestones um but with the springboks i think at that stage when uh, the fans come down hard on you uh it's it's hard to or it's easy to get lost in that whole thing. But when you look at it from from or high from a point of of hindsight, or you look at it from from an external point of view, then you realize that look, for the fans to 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 go that hard, it just means that they really care. You know, they really are proud of that jersey. They, it means a lot to them, and I think uh, that's that's something that tends to get lost in translation. Or, or people tend to mis, mis uh, understand that. Yes, it doesn't always come out positive, but I think the core uh, ingredient in there is just they've got a certain passion and it's, it's, a, it's one thing that South Africans are very known for is their passion. So I think, yes, um, whilst I was going through that, it, uh, it was a lot, but uh, looking back and it, it's just a realization that they're very proud of the jersey and granted they should be um so when the jersey does well you're a hero and when it doesn't i mean yeah <laughs> nothing left to be said i remember there was quite a lot of kind of backlash after the sort of all blacks defeat uh mm -hmm. during the alistair could see a sort of uh rain there and uh, yeah. i remember you got a bit of backlash during that period how, how was how did you kind of deal and overcome the adversity and did you get much sort of hate online or anything like that? 
No, I was going to say a bit of backlash is a, is a, is a huge understatement. Um, I think that uh, that test is is essentially known as the Raymond Rule test. I'm, I'm sure they've renamed it by now. Um, but uh, <laughs> um, a, bit, a bit of backlash, uh, you, can't even, you can't even compare. I mean, if I remember correctly, I had to switch my phone off. That's how bad it was. So I was getting phone calls, texts. Uh, when I switched my phone off, some guys sent emails. I'm like, where would you get my email address from? But uh, it was a difficult time, I will say, mentally uh, more so than physically. Um, getting over it, though, took quite a while. Because, I mean, you, you, you get where athletes will sit down and just say you've got to have a – be strong mentally and not uh, basically keep out all the hate and all that. It's not uh, that easy. Like you, you've got friends, you've got families, you've got people that are close to you. Even if you don't look look at it, they see it. And somewhere, somehow, unless obviously you've, you've addressed certain situations like that, they will tell you what's happening or you'll hear what's happening. And um, guys that are mentally strong and are able to basically figure that portion out. I mean, that's, that's, that's a superpower, but I think uh, a lot of athletes or a lot of uh, players do get to that point where it, it does affect you. And uh, I mean, you see it out on performances. For a simple example is if a guy's struggling with his kicking, that's the only thing he's worried about, you know? He forgets the rest of his uh, accomplishments or rest of his duties and just worries about the one kick he missed, even though he slotted 10. So uh, it's it's a tough situation to be in, but uh, I, I I managed to get out of it, so I'm, I'm proud of that part. How how long did it kind of go on for? How long did you kind of was it kind of troubling you? I mean, let's just say it was a ratio of eighty minutes to three years. <laughs> so it took me eighty minutes to put myself in it, and three years for me to get myself out of it. Is that is that because? sort of the fans were just not letting it go for sort of the th three years afterwards or no the, the fans the fans will never let it go in that aspect that's why i say you can someone name that uh that test the raymond rule test but uh not even that i think your biggest enemy is uh what's uh, what's going on in here and um when there's a bit of doubt especially with the sport that we play in at a, at a high level you don't have any room for doubt and uh once that doubt starts to creep in you know it starts eating and eating at your psyche and um now it it, it comes down to even when people aren't talking about you, you feel like they are so <laughs> um you become your biggest critique you know um in that aspect so even when i i left because um I'd, I'd honestly had to leave South Africa just to be able to basically get away from, from everything for a little bit. Uh, but even when I'd left, um, coming to France, new new environment, new people, no one knows about the whole issue. I still carried all that that um, that baggage. So I think for the better, better amount of three years, uh, I was in that rut. Yeah. So what was kind of the turning point? How did you then get over it? Uh, honestly speaking, when I first got here to La Rochelle and I, uh, Rog giving me the 13 jersey, because uh, I mean, number 13 is one of the toughest positions to defend on the field. And that's here where, where I played at, in school and a bit of uh, under 21 rugby. But 
I've always been known for being a very good defender, you know, and all of a sudden when they when they now tag you as this horrible defender, that sort of gets um creeps into your head. But I came here to La Rochelle with a clean slate, um, put my my best foot forward, and uh, we had an issue at thirteen. And Roger's like, "Look, I mean, I'm going to give you this opportunity, and whatever you you make of it is is your own." But uh, I think just having that faith in me, you know, where I'd almost like uh, sort of lost faith in that in that aspect, uh, really gave me a huge boost of confidence and just put me back on the right track. So yeah, I'd say that. I'd say that uh, being being looked at from a different light. Yeah, I think behind the scenes, the player coach relationship can be a mix of mentorship and camaraderie. Uh, was there any particular conversations or exchanges uh, with Rog that left a lasting impression on you and maybe contributed to your growth as both a player and individual? No, I wouldn't say there is. I think um, to put it. Uh, altogether is that uh, actions speak louder than words. A coach can say a lot of things and uh, promise you a lot of things, but uh, every day or every game when a coach picks a, a starting 15 or 23, he's putting his job on the line. And essentially those guys that he's trusting with uh, or giving those jerseys have, have a huge responsibility towards him and he puts a lot of faith in them. So when he gives you that jersey and gives you that opportunity, it says a lot. You know, even though he doesn't need to say a lot, it says a lot in and of itself. So I think that's 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 for me. We have a lot of conversation, but I don't think there's anything that's more powerful than your act. Yeah. And you came in, I think Rog took over around 2020, right? Or 2019 um, mm -hmm. with La Rochelle. And that's kind of when you came in, right? How, how was that sort of first few months uh, moving in with the team? No, I initially came in, yes, 2019, but at that stage, Raj was assistant coach. We initially was was Jono. I think Jono uh, was our head coach and uh, Ronan was our um, our or assistant coach. So I came in and uh, look at that stage, before the year before I was playing pro leader and I was doing my, my thing in there. I was playing fullback, a, a bit of um, wing fullback. And... Uh, I came in with nothing to lose and from the word go, the guys just saw that, look, we have got something in him and um, they encouraged me to be myself and uh, just enjoy the experience. So from the word go, they just uh, allowed me to be me. And uh, that's when you get the best out of me, when I can just be myself. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Was there sort of, was it um, difficult? Was it quite, how was it transitioning over to sort of French culture and French uh, way of life? It is hard, but uh, I think the nice thing that happens is a lot of the foreign boys, wherever you go, they've already there's guys that's already been in that position, and they can give you sort of a couple of pointers. And uh, I'd like to say thank you to a guy like Burton Francis, who's now back home in South Africa. When I initially got to Grenoble, um, he just sat me down and said, "Look, man, the first thing you should know is that you're not going to change anything, and if you're going to rack your your brain around trying to change it." You're just going to give yourself more stress. Certain things are just the way they are. And the sooner you accept it, the better it goes. And uh, I took that to heart. And I think uh, it's it was sound advice. And how did you kind of change your style of play when you moved to France? I think it had to change. Um, if, if I can speak back to the way 
the way things happen in in Super Rugby, while Super Rugby was still was still a thing with uh, South African teams, was no matter what happens during the season, you always got an you always have another chance next year. So you play under a different amount of pressure. In the French league, there's promotion relegation, and I was at a small team uh, at that stage, uh, Grenoble, which is now in the Pro D2. They're doing very well. Um, but you play there and every every game you're an underdog and every mistake you make gives us a point. It takes away a point or we get a bonus point. So every game and every every aspect of the rugby environment in France is pressurized because that could be the mistake that costs you a season or costs you going up, going down. So it gives, it, you play under a different amount of pressure. And now that being said, I would say when I was in Super Rugby, I was a bit more free with the ball, more allowed to make mistakes. And it's not really that bad. I mean, we'll try again next year if it doesn't go our way. Whilst uh, in France, I mean, if you're making mistakes like that, first, you can't play. And secondly, that's, that's you costing the rest of the teams, uh, you know, some sometimes it's salary, some people have to move. So it's a huge implication every time you step on that field. And I think getting becoming older, and just under understanding all the responsibilities that come with the game was uh, the thing that changed everything for me. You obviously bounced back pretty well from the Raymond Rule test because uh, you went on to then win the with La Rochelle not just once but two years in a row. Um, what do you think was sort of the main difference in Raymond Rule from 2017 and then Raymond Rule in 2022 when you won the first? Um, European Champions Cup. I think the hugest, the 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 huge thing is just growth, man. Um, I I think we make a lot of mistakes here and there. It doesn't always go our way, but uh, the ability to bounce back, I think, uh, that's important. Um, yes, to a certain degree, I do feel like um, I never really got my opportunity again. But uh, that is a part of life in terms of the Springboks. But uh, I've learned to to be okay with that. And I've also understood that uh, it is a business. And in any company that uh, things don't go well, heads must roll. And unfortunately, it was mine that had to roll. Um, it's not nice, but you understand, or I've come to understand that. Um, but... Yeah, I, I I bring it all down to growth. I was much younger then, much more free and much more liberal about the way I go about everything. Coming into France, my game was able to mature and I was able to mature as well. So, uh, yeah, that's that's the biggest difference, just growth. And do you think um, you're maybe used as a sort of scapegoat from the Raymond Rule test or against the All Blacks? Uh, yeah, look, I, I can sit here and say that, yes, to a certain degree, but ultimately I've got to take accountability for my own mistakes and uh, my approach to that game. Um, yes, there's a lot that could have gone right, but there's a lot that did go wrong. And unfortunately, that's the one thing about rugby. If a lot of stuff's going wrong that's around you, then you become the the catalyst, you know. Um, looking back, I could have done a whole lot of other things differently, uh, which... If it was now, I, I would know how to handle it. But um, South Africa is a different landscape. And I think uh, if you if I refer back to the earlier conversation where we, we spoke about the South Africans just being highly passionate, 
about their sport. Um, you understand that uh, it it is it come might come come out as as hate to a certain degree, but it comes from a point of passion, and it might not necessarily be aimed towards me, but I might just be the guy that's wearing that jersey at that stage. So you tend to understand how it is. Yeah, I mean hindsight's always a great lesson to learn as well. Have you have you spoken with um have you, has there ever been any talks in the last few years with Razi at all? Um are you on his radar? Have you chatted? No, no, no. I I think I the message was was clear before I left. Um one of the reasons why I left South Africa was Rossi had just come in and um he was just trying to basically get his uh, bearings of his stock. So they had a camp of about 100 players in, in South Africa, and uh, I wasn't part of it. So at that stage, you understand that uh, you are no way in his books, not in the not in the future. So uh, that was the point for me was like, you know what, um, it's time. But since then, uh, sometimes coaches just don't like you, man. Uh, it's nothing personal. Yeah. Maybe something about your game doesn't fit what it is that he's looking for. So uh no, no, no chat thus far. Um, but it's he doesn't owe me anything. Um, so um settled all that. Yeah, I was I was speaking with uh Chris Robshaw yesterday, who was telling me uh, when Eddie came in and he dropped a bunch of the players from the 2019 squad that had been in the senior sort of development team for around the last sort of seven years, and he said sometimes coaches just don't have they've got their jigsaw puzzle and there's a piece in the jigsaw and maybe you fit maybe you don't fit but for some coaches it just is what it is it is what it is it's not personal uh you learn that with age so winning two european rugby trophies consecutively is quite an incredible feat uh can you take us back to the moments just before those final matches and share the atmosphere within the team any pre-game rituals or unique preparations that you believe played a key role in back-to-back victories? Uh, not necessarily. I think we take we take it very uh, take the the games very seriously, and uh, the nice thing is that uh, we've managed to acquire a lot of experience in that aspect. Uh, having played in um, the first year back to well two finals, obviously not winning, but uh, we knew it was a it was a taste we wanted to have again. And the whole the whole season we were working towards that. And uh, the one thing I did learn uh, while I was at the Cheetahs with um, under coach Franku, uh, Franku Smith, he he would say always say that uh, you don't prepare for a final in the week of a final. You prepare in all the weeks leading up to it, and then the final basically plays itself. So uh, I think that's that's honestly one of the approaches that I think Ronan also takes is. You pre- we already know what our, our objective and our goal is, and then we just map out a way to get there. Um, you know? What what is uh, Ronan's sort of pre match talks like? I, I've seen a few of them. He he's got a very strong Cork accent in French when he when he's going yeah. through. But no. what's it like for you? No, it's interesting. I mean, uh, Ronan's a very chill guy, and uh, he's a people's person. But then he he knows when to turn on. Uh, be and be our manager or our coach um and it depends on on who's receiving because some guys can be really serious and some guys will take the piss or whatever the case might be but um 
he knows how to get his message across and especially when it counts. So and I think that's one of the indicators of a good uh, manager or coach. And what was that pregame talk like um, in the final this this year round? Uh, to be honest with you, if I remember correctly, the message was simply this. What type of story do you want to write or what type of history do you want to, do you want to create? Yes, we were victorious in France and in, 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 in Marseille in our own backyard. But if you really want to become a legend, then you have to go into the lion's den and beat the lion. You know, that was that was the culmination of that week. And I think the nice part is both both years didn't give us a chance. And I mean, what what more motivation could you want? If you've got nothing to do, you just might as well throw the kitchen sink at them and see if they can handle it. That's it. And you guys ran away with a victory. You ran away with a try. And you also ran away with the uh, the corner post, right? Yes. <laughs> yes, I did. Yes, I did. Um, look, it was, it was great. And I think because uh, I watch a lot of um, all these Viking movies and all that, and uh, it's all based in all these wars and strategy and winning. And uh, the one thing they say is, look, when you go into battle and you conquer, bring yourself a souvenir. And that was mine. <laughs> that was mine. The corner post now, where where is she? Uh, uh, it was in my garden, but now it's in my room. It's in my <laughs> I like it. I like it. Um, so obviously there was quite, I can imagine there was quite a lot of celebrations. Could you give us sort of a glimpse into the aftermath of those triumphs? How did the celebration unfold and were there any spontaneous or memorable uh, experiences you can share from the moments uh, when you sealed the victory? No, I mean, the first time is always the most special. I think that was just, uh, I can't explain the feeling. Um, and I think it was just just overwhelming. Um, but we we went all out. And I think that's that's what we learned on the second time because when we went all out after celebrating, we still had uh, the top 14 to go fight for. And uh, we fell short on that aspect. But last year, we, were, we had a bit more of experience and we had uh, placed ourselves in a position where we can handle it a whole lot better. So definitely there was uh, fun that was had, especially the guys that were winning it for the first time. But at the back of our minds, we all knew that, look, we've got uh, we've got um, a final to get ourselves to and uh, possibly win a, a double. Unfortunately, we fell short. Uh, so that's just part of rugby. There's always next year. Yes, yes. There's always opportunities i think that's been a key running theme here is hopefully there's more opportunities to come um i think there's been there's some pretty cool badass uh photos of you and rog smoking the cigars uh on the tour bus how was how that no that was that was cool that was cool and i think that's one of the things that uh, you appreciate about just having a, a good coach is that uh look when it's time to play it's time to play but when it's time to work it's time to work and uh when the guys are playing, then they, as long as they do it responsibly, he's he's all all for that. And who who are some of the big leaders in off the field and on train in training and things like this in the squad? Off the field, as in like with socials or what? More so with yeah, I mean, sort of big names in the squad, sort of that um kind of respected or sort of leaders within the team. 
the people. Yeah, we've got do. we've got a we've got a bunch of we've got a bunch of guys. I think um, the previous uh, or before when I initially got here, there was uh, Victor Vida was here. He was huge for us, um, but he retired. Um, then we've got leaders that uh, don't have to say anything. They do their leading on the field. Um, guys like, obviously, he's not here anymore. Vian, um, he was here. But uh, when you look at the group, the way it is now, just in terms of setting a good vibe and getting everyone in a good mood, we've got a guy like Will Skelton. He's always a fun guy to be around. Um, Winnie Antonio as well. Um, but those guys know how to basically crack a joke all the way till we get on the field and you think they're going to switch on and be serious and they're still cracking a joke on the field, but you can't say anything because these guys are playing unbelievable rugby. That's just their personalities. So it gives us a bit of, um, of calm and silliness with, with our games. And you got a guy like Tawira who's uh, always serious. You know, he can crack a joke here and there, but he's the guy that always sort of keeps us uh, from not straying too far from our objectives um so yeah no we've got across the board then that's just more in the foreign foreign boys group and then just uh leaders across the board you've got guys like Bugaritz, you've got um Aldrid, so lips there's a lot of guys across the board and i think we are lucky in that aspect yeah i i remember seeing this hilarious video of antonio talking to matt con uh asking about his passport situation <laughs> <laughs> yeah, now I was supposed to do that in the French final, but I had buckled under pressure. My French fellow, <laughs> and that was my second chance. Hopefully, a third time, lucky. Yeah, hundred percent, hundred percent. And it, I mean, it's always nice having a guy like Will Skelton on your team. I I wouldn't want to be having to tackle him if I was. Uh... <laughs> I reckon, man, that's it's it's near impossible, man. Uh, the guy is just—he's uh, a gentle giant. I think that's the big that's the best word to use a gentle John. He can be aggressive. Um, he can uh turn it on when it when when you need to turn it on. But uh outside of that, he's a cool guy, wants to help everyone, basically bakes cookies for us, you know. So that's <laughs> that's all. So he'll 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 bump you off and then give you a cookie afterwards. So that's all. So I, I watched the Barbarians uh, series and um, I, I know you were lucky to be part of the Barbarians during that period. Um, what was it? What was your experience like with the Barbarians and how did you find that? That was awesome, man. Yo, I think uh, especially a lot of the far, the the French boys that are also part of it, some of them you, you get to know a little bit more because most of the time you're just facing them and playing against them and uh, you never really get time to chill and just uh, have a beer together. And um, the boys from outside as well, because a guy like George Bridge was just coming in. So it's just an opportunity to get to know guys that you would not uh, normally uh, not associate with, but not not normally have the time to to associate with. I mean, if I look back, uh, I think that's one of the my regrets uh, of playing Super Rugby was when the New Zealand and the Aussie boys come, we never really mixed as much, you know. Um, and then now coming here and and getting to know a guy like Will, getting to go, know a guy like T, and just thinking, ah, oh, man, if we actually took the time and got to know each other, we'd have so many more stories when they'd come to our backyards or when we go to theirs. So uh, I think that's one of my regrets. And um, playing with the Barbarians, I was able to do that. And obviously now playing in France, it's uh, it's come a long way. 
Scott Robinson, quite a renowned coach that led the Barbarians during that time. Uh, yeah. Can you shed any sort of light on his specific coaching style or anything he might have said to you, uh, fostering sort of unity and performance on the field? I think when I look at um, Razor, he doesn't say much, but when he says something, everyone listens. And he has a, a respect uh, or aura around him that uh, that uh, he, it's just there. And I, I think uh, he doesn't put too much pressure on you. Um, he allows you to be yourself. Uh, but all he'll say is, look, you've got a responsibility. Whatever you do up, up until that point or after, that's up to you. But you've got a responsibility now towards me, towards the team, towards your families. And uh, just uh, go out there and be be the person that we picked. And uh, there was a, from a mental point of view, that's what I got. But just from a coaching point of view, he's very simple. He tells you, this is what I want. Uh, be here, be there. Everything else, just play. That's all you need to hear. That's pretty clear, man. And then was there any, obviously there's a lot of personalities and barbarians is famous for bringing a lot of people together. Um, were there any sort of unexpected friendships or connections that you formed during your time with the Barbers? You form a, you form a connection uh, with everyone. I think that's a nice thing about it. We all go out together, all enjoy together. Obviously, it was nice that I had quite a lot of guys that I've played with and I know uh, from... Uh, from being here, but uh, it was really nice to get to to know the new guys. Um, an unexpected personality, I will say, is Joe Marler. He's he's a crack, and uh, he's he, he's he's his own guy. Um, but you just learn to enjoy being around him and uh, listening to all the things he says. Um, but yeah, no, I think Joe Marler was for me the surprise of the barbarians. Was there anything that stood out to you that you might have said? No, no, nothing. I, I just think uh, he's he's always on point with all all his sayings, and the accent also also gets you or catches you off guard. But just generally, he's a funny bloke and uh, highly respected. Uh, but you just see him as being this serious guy with this serious face on uh, on on TV or playing again uh, next to him. But then when you put all that away and we just cracking jokes i mean he's he's one of the coolest guys you'd meet fair enough fair enough i think yeah he seems like a quite a big personality when when you see him on sort of different shows and everything and uh yeah. I imagine he's quite a banterous boy yeah no no he's got a lot of banter that one <laughs> so moving on to sort of the world cup and everything like that uh, mm. and obviously south africa just played in the rugby championship what what's your opinion on the current state of rugby with south africa I think they're in, a, they're in a, uh, an in-between spot. Um, I think they've got the pressures of being the defending champs. Um, but also now they, they do understand that they obviously are playing uh, in, a, in a different atmosphere. Um, but they've, they've added a couple of, couple of guys um, into their squad or group uh, since the last time they've won that bring other aspects or bring different qualities. I think now um, what they need to go figure out is uh, how to basically replicate uh, that same uh, environment and 
winning culture like they did in 2019. So uh, there's a lot of pressure on them. Obviously, yes, from back home, but I think on the, themselves individually, they all pride themselves in being uh, world-class players. So uh, they're in a good place. Um, yeah, ultimately, in a good place. Do you think they'll struggle without uh, Andre Pollard in the initial stages? I think uh, Paulie brings, brings a lot of calm to the team um, in that aspect. Uh, Mahani not coming in is um, a bit more flashy, but um, from what, what I understand about him, he can also somewhat replicate that. Um, but uh, I think it's small things that one misses from uh, from certain personalities. But uh, that's the that's a beauty of sport, man. If one guy can't do it, someone else has to stand up um, and you might even get more than what you were losing with the previous guy. So you never know. Mani has the time now or opportunity to go prove himself. I would say everyone should just stand behind him and let him basically grow into, into the shoes he has to fill. And uh, we might be lucky and he outgrows those shoes. Yeah, I think Mani Lubak's come, has come in and he's offering more the kicking, reassurance kicking off the tee that maybe Willemse uh, didn't quite offer it at number 10 because uh, mm. Willemse was more quite flashy. And I'd, I'd be very interested to see Willemse at 15 with Marni Lubak at, at number 10 there. Um, mm. But obviously he's come in quite late and um, he's not had a lot of time to gel into the Springbok squad. Um, mm. But like you said, people can surprise you and anything can happen. As we were talking earlier, opportunities come and they go and... Uh, Hopefully it turns out all right for for Mali there. Um, yeah. In terms of favourites and predictions for the World Cup, who who do you thinks who do you thinks the favourites to win? Obviously, you tend to have to go with France being in their back home uh, or backyard. Sorry, um, but I mean the Springboks can always surprise any team on any day. The All Blacks as well. I mean Ireland's playing really great rugby. So I think for me, those four teams, I mean, can beat any team on any day. Um, yes, there's always other teams that can surprise you, Scotland, your Wales, or whatever the case might be, Argentina. There's many fringe uh, teams, but I think those four teams, depending on who can adapt the most uh, or the best, uh, we'll, we'll see. Um, but you tend to have to go with the favourites to a certain degree. And I think the French squad and team isn't a very good wicket. Whichever team that's going to beat the French in France has to be on their A game on that day. And which Ireland can be, South Africa can be, the All Blacks can be. I mean, it's it's a nice World Cup to go into because before most World Cups, you have a clear-cut favourite. And I think right now, there's a bit of everything. And it's 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 it makes for good TV. Yeah. 100%. I think it's going to be the closest World Cup we've ever had, um, given that previous World Cups, it was all quite dominated by the All Blacks and the, and the box. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I'm very excited. Uh, obviously, going back to the final again, there's there's obviously been a lot of sort of controversy around uh, bans and World Rugby with uh, the Owen Farrell tackle and um, the Johnny Sexton ban, uh, which you were in that match, I believe, um, in the final... Did that happen when he the when Johnny got banned for complaining to the ref or was that in the final with the other? If I'm not mistaken, I think the what, what happened what happened there was um 
they were trying to avoid Ronan from chatting to the coach or something or a ref or something like that. Apparently, it was something that happened previously, the previous year, and they were trying to avoid that. So I'm not too versed in that whole whole incident, um, to be honest with you. But uh, yeah, I mean, we are we are all human beings. Sometimes, uh, most times, we're able to control our emotions, but sometimes we aren't. But I don't think uh, Johnny is not a is not a good bloke at all. I think he's a good bloke. Sometimes your emotions get the best of you. But uh, I think he's he's done a lot for the rugby sphere and the rugby world, and uh, he's he's still going to be respected either way. What what do you think uh, rugby needs to do to grow as a sport? Honestly, I think uh, they need to sell more of a story um, at the moment now, and I think I'm liking this aspect where I saw the international sides have um, their names on their jerseys. Um, I think that that's important for the growth of rugby to not just associate a player with a team, but to associate a player with his story and sort of follow the player's story instead of just uh, following a team. Um, and I think soccer and all these other sports are able to do that. If you look at the way uh, Ronaldo commands uh, uh, a following or Mercy commands a following where, yes, uh, these guys might be hardcore Barca fans, but they've now also started following into Miami and all these places. And I think that's where rugby is is uh, a bit behind in being able to sell individualized uh, stories uh, and sell the personalities that you have in the sport, whereas uh, right now it's just a blanket sport. And do you think perhaps we were talking about before the podcast, the one versus one rugby. Uh, do you think that would be a way that that could be done? Look, with one versus one rugby, um, ultimately it's yes to, to, to tell a story, but it gives uh, an excitement factor where you see matchups. Uh, when you look, when you think about a rugby game, you don't necessarily think about, you don't get an opportunity to get a one-on-one matchup. So we always have this thing of, uh, if you look at basketball, when they speak, they want to, they speak about primetime MJ and LeBron James and, you know, those type of things. So you get your one-on-one matchups. In rugby, there's so many variables and uh, combinations that even if uh, the analysts would be like, yeah, um, Lucanio Am is going against the uh, ring rows, you're never really going to get that opportunity, you know, because... They're always somewhere else on the field. Yes, here and there you see it. But when you look at one versus one, there's no place to hide. You know, when you're talking about a matchup, you're talking about you've got to stand your ground and your opponent also has to stand his ground. And uh, depending on who gives in, uh, it it makes for an interesting uh, or makes for entertaining TV. Let me say that. It's like the UFC of rugby, essentially. Essentially. Um, so I think that's the end of the uh, normal part of the podcast. Yeah. Uh, we're now going to move on to the quick fire fan questions just to wrap things up. Mm. Um, so I'm going to hit you off with the first one, which is who is the toughest player you've ever faced? Toughest player I've ever faced? I would say John Daisel. He's still, he used to play for the Sharks back in the day. Tough as nails. I think that's the hardest tackle I've ever felt. So definitely John Daisel. And I mean, I might put a close second be Liam Squire because, I mean, he retired my international career. Fair enough, fair enough. <laughs> Brutal. 
And what are your thoughts on English rugby? Ooh, English rugby. Um, I mean, I think they face a, a huge, uh, um, they're in a difficult spot because obviously England, if I'm not mistaken, the the rugby's played in private schools or something like that. I'm not sure how it works down there, but most of the other nations have a bigger pool of boys to choose from. And sometimes with the England rugby, because soccer is a big thing, it, it becomes a bit harder for them to to basically churn out talent like that. Um, but I think they should just uh, be true to who they are. Um, I think they're struggling with the identity at the moment and uh, chopping and changing coaches might not necessarily be the, the how do I say it, the, the answer. But I mean, if you... The Springboks in uh, 2018. So, look, I mean, did I need I say more? <laughs> but I, I will surprise you there, Raymond, because actually England has the largest group of player pool selection in the world. Really? Yeah. Bigger than South Africa? I think so, yeah. And that's why there's a lot of... Everyone's saying England's got such a large selection of players. Why mm. aren't they world number one and all the resources and everything? That's That's why there's so much back and forth between the media. Um, I mean, I'm highly misinformed. I'll, I'll check that out. Yeah. So what is schoolboy? What does schoolboy rugby in South Africa mean to you? Schoolboy rugby in South Africa, honestly speaking, is a fraternity. I think it's the closest thing you'll get to to the way they uh, the way they're able to do in American football, where people are just crazy about it. Uh, I think to a certain degree, if there was a a bigger marketing uh, machine behind it, schoolboy rugby would uh, would challenge some of the some of the professional teams. I mean, it's crazy. Um, you can get to a place where there's thirty thousand people coming out for a weekend of schoolboy rugby, and uh, that's numbers that you're getting here in Europe, where like in our stadium is about eighteen thousand, you know, and we're getting a, a um, sold-out stadium every weekend. That's a huge achievement. But, I mean, for derbies uh, back in South Africa, you'd easily get a 20K people out there. So, I mean, schoolboy rugby for me, especially in South Africa, is is a huge brand, um, somewhat untapped, but I think they enjoy the fact that it's not... Uh, it just comes down to the rugby and supporting your team. It's not a business. What was the hardest thing about moving from South Africa to France? The food, the yeah. food, <laughs> the food, because I'm all, I'm generally a picky eater. So uh, in South Africa, I always knew all my spots. I always knew what I wanted or what I could get. I mean, in France, adjusting to the times, adjusting to the to the palettes uh, that they have here and just the way they go about everything. Uh, uh, it kept me hungry for a bit, but I managed to survive. What's your favorite French expression? C'est comme ça. Who do you think is the greatest coach of all time? Ooh. Oh, that depends, eh? What are we, what are we, what are, what's the metric? Um, true. 
I plead the fifth on that one. I wouldn't know what to say. I think uh, depending on, look, a lot of coaches have got a lot of accolades across the board. I I tend to just favor coaches that picked me. So, <laughs> your favorite coach of all time that you've had? I'm at the moment. Ronan's picking me, so I go Ronan. I can't go wrong there. Um, who do you think will be the standout player of the Rugby World Cup? Ooh. On just purely on individual brilliance. I think I mean Cheslin's always a good bet. I think he's a he's a walking highlight reel. Um if you're talking about just established players, but uh I mean I, I wouldn't be surprised if a youngster, like a guy that no one really knows, comes in and surprises a lot of people, especially the new guy that's um that's playing for the French squad, uh Belbaret. He's quite good. Um, so he might come in and surprise a couple of people. But yeah, I would say Cheslin for now. What's your favorite cut of cigar? Ooh, I wouldn't know. I just smoke it. <laughs> I wouldn't know. I just smoke it. Um, yeah, no, no I, I don't have a favorite. I just. Uh, I think that one came in because the, the, the photo I put up earlier for the fan questions. Yeah, was yeah, yeah. Sorry, yeah. No. I think it's become quite iconic with your branding, let's say. Yeah, no, no, that's right, that's right. So I, I should get, uh, I should become a bit more versed in uh, the cigar game then. <laughs> what's um, what's one part of the world that you'd like that you've not been to, but you'd like to travel to? Uh, I think Seychelles, Maldives, those type of places. I've never really been to anywhere like. Well, I come from a tropical sort of um environment but i've really always wanted to go to see these clear waters you know blue i mean see if instagram is not lying to me uh the next fine question is what what's your story from moving from ghana over to south africa uh pretty simple my dad originally originally moved to south africa and uh, he basically came and set up everything and uh uh, I think about two or three years later, if not a bit more, then uh, my mom and I came over and joined him. Uh, just looking for economic um, opportunities. That's, a, that's it. And then, so this question is going to be a question from me. Uh, mm. So I'm, I'm moving to China after the World Cup to go and play rugby and film a documentary out there to tr try and grow rugby in, in China. So mm. what would your piece of advice be to me uh, going out there and then playing rugby with all the Chinese teams? I think uh, you've got to be able to adapt. Um, I think that's where a lot of people tend to go wrong or tend to fall short is uh, they they want things to tend to fall the way they see it. And when you're in a new environment and with around new people, you know, the the quicker you can adapt, the quicker things work out for you. And you never know what opportunities you can get from that. Uh, but yeah, essentially that. I think uh, adaptability is a superpower. And, and if you're able to do that, uh, it goes a long way, especially for the locals. Yeah, 100%. 100%. Having that cultural awareness and being able to adapt to all situations and finding the opportunities. Um and then the final question that I always ask is if you had one piece of advice for our younger audience and people mm -hmm. that are growing up and looking up to players like yourself, what would it be? Mm -hmm. 
I would say enjoy it while you still can. Because uh, the dream of most young boys is uh, to become a professional. Um, but uh, when you're a professional, the responsibility that comes with it is you might not necessarily be playing the way you want to or playing in the conditions you want to or playing under the coaches you want to. So then it becomes more of a responsibility than just pure enjoyment. So while you're still young, enjoy it because no what what is a coach going to say to you after after you get someone puts you on your ass or someone runs around you you go sit and your friends laugh about it no one's going to write about it in the newspaper or whatever so you you're able to enjoy the game and play it the way it's meant to be played the older you get it becomes a business and businesses have uh, targets and it's either you are, as you said, part of the jigsaw puzzle or you're not. So ultimately, the word just enjoy. Enjoy. Mm. And if there was one person that you'd like to see on the Champagne Rugby podcast, who would it be and why? To mm. hear his story, uh, I'd say Cornell Hendricks. And why I say that is uh, I've played with him. And um, firstly, he's a great oak. Um, secondly, he's he's very he's he's very intelligent in that aspect, and he's very passionate about the game of rugby, and he's willing to put the work in. But for about four years, he wasn't allowed to play. Now I've been out for about six six. A month, month and a half, but my first major injury, whatever the case might be. And I'm not even sure what to do with myself, you know. But he's been out for, or he was out for four years and finding that motivation to keep going and looking for opportunity after opportunity whilst many doors were closed. I think that's a fascinating story. Um, yeah, and I and I think it, it'll be an interesting interesting watch just to hear how he was able to continue keeping the faith and basically keeping in shape as well up until he got that yes will take you on you know that's me i might i'm inspired i'm gonna reach out to him uh once this podcast is done and see if we can get him on 100 yeah i think he's got a very good story a very good story thank you very much raymond for your time uh it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the podcast and I'm sure the the listeners have also learned a lot and been inspired in some way by your story. Uh, for those listeners that are interested to follow your story, uh, where can they find you on social media? Uh, just generally on uh, on Instagram, uh, Rule or Raymond Rule or Rule Eleven, I think somewhere like that. Just Raymond Rule on Instagram. You can follow me there. Uh, I mean, I don't post a lot, but uh, when I do post, it's something exciting that's happening. So, <laughs> um, but yeah, that's that's where you can follow me. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for your time, and it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much, Champion.